following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, my name's Leon O'Flynn. I'm one of the members here at uh, the congregation, and um, I've been asked to preach this morning, so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Uh, whether you do that physically or by electronics, that's, uh, that's your decision. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Uh, married uh, with three children, and they're over there today, and uh, I've assured them I won't tell too many uh, family stories uh, that will embarrass and annoy them, um, partly because my oldest son now is stronger than I am, and if I get too out of line, uh, he tends to put me back in my place these days. So we've reached that threshold in our house where my, youngest, my oldest son can uh, take me out if he wants to, so uh, it's a sad day. Uh, my youngest son just talks about how old I am usually, and the fact that I'm going to have to wear glasses while I do my sermon today just confirms the fact that to quote Kieran last time, I think I'm about 150 on his latest uh, reckoning. Um, I've spent uh, 10 years uh, local church pastoring, and then uh, the last 10 years I've spent mostly in the military as a chaplain, and uh, a little bit of time working in a theological college as well as the academic dean. So kind of a mixed uh, background. So if my sermon comes across as a bit too academic today, please forgive me. If it comes across a bit too directive, that's just the military side of me coming out. Um, we like uh, things crisp and clear, and uh, we don't like uh, lots of flowery words. Um, classic example of that is in the military, we have this phrase, and it drives what you guys are mostly, civvies, um, mental, which is someone will write you a very long email or a very detailed description of something, and you write back, ACK, A-C-K, acknowledged. I got your email, I understand what you want me to do, and I'll take care of it. That's the end of the communication. I don't need to write, oh, hey, how's your day going? I hope it's all good, you know, and how are you feeling? How was the weekend? Ack. So uh, a lot of people really appreciate that when they join the military. So um, we're in Luke chapter 9, and there's a lot going on here. So I kind of thought Reuben did the old preacher's trick of giving a really difficult passage out uh, so that he wouldn't have to take care of it. But it's not difficult because of controversy. It's difficult because so much is going on. And uh, in this section of Scripture, there's a lot happening. And the thing I'm going to focus on is this transformation uh, of Jesus, which is uh, where we're going to look at in Acts, uh, Luke chapter 9. And what we see in this passage is a new insight for the disciples and us as readers onto who Jesus is. And I don't know about you, but this time of the year... I find it a great chance to do some reflecting about what's going on in my life, to get a little bit of insight. And as people, we find insight quite difficult sometimes. Sometimes those insights are quite easy and straightforward. Uh, sometimes those insights are quite hard, and perhaps we don't like what we've sort of discovered about ourselves, and so we struggle with that. Some, some insights are easy. we kind of known them for a long time, and when they get confirmed, we just, we just sort of go, yes, that's, that's true. Uh, a few years ago, I was leading a, a service in the field for some soldiers, and I'd set up this tent, and I'd got a uh, data projector and all this sort of stuff, and I'm walking there with this uh, young officer that I knew, and he goes, oh, Leon, are you a good singer? And I go, no, I'm not. He goes, oh, okay. So we go in there, and we run the service, and we come out, and he goes, you really aren't a good singer, are you? You're terrible. I just thought you were being false modest. 
And it's like, no, 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 no. I'm very comfortable with the fact I can't sing. Uh, when I play uh, Sing Star with my children, I kind of get more points by not singing. All right? So as I sort of slice across it all, I kind of get random points. So some insights are easy. I'm comfortable with the fact that I can't sing. I think I've got some other gifts that are fine for that. Other times we get insight into things about ourselves that we don't find so amusing or aren't as comfortable or perhaps they're not as easy to uh, deal with. Uh, perhaps we understand uh, some of our motives for the first time or perhaps we see uh, some jealousy coming out or perhaps we uh, don't quite like where we are. Uh, this time of the year, a lot of people struggle with the fact they're maybe not as fit as they once were. You know, you've gone out over the summer to play your favorite sport and a few things got torn or pulled or broken, um, or perhaps uh, things click or clack a little bit more than they used to, and so we kind of get this idea that this, this is the time of the year we often reflect on this. I was speaking to someone the other day who uh, was writing out their goals for 2020, and they said they got a little off track when they got to page three. Um, I said, that sounds more like a to-do list than a goals list, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to have to go back and give that another go, I think. So, so here we are in the scripture. We're going to do two things today. We're going to sort of place it into context. And then we're going to apply it a little bit, okay? So that's what I'm doing anyway. So you're welcome to come along with me. Uh, please don't play on your phone too much uh, if you don't like what I'm doing. So uh, verse 28 of Luke chapter 9 is where we are. And we'll talk a little bit about more in a moment. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took, them, took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we were here, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came down and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the, face had, the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, Luke um, is a rather gifted writer. Uh, if you've taken the time to study his gospel uh, in sort of uh, language circles, the first four verses of his gospel are seen as some of the finest Greek uh, language from this period. And so when we're reading Luke, he draws us into a different world, a world that we're often unfamiliar with, a world that perhaps is uh, a little foreign to us, and it's easy just to sort of bounce across the surface and not engage uh, at a more full level of what's happening in this text. And when Luke writes, he's using a number of sort of cultural literary skills that his readers, the listeners to this gospel, would have picked up on the first time. Now, the thing about culture is that you kind of just know it without being told it. You don't go to cultural school uh, as, a, as a person growing up in your own culture to learn about your culture. You kind of just pick it up by osmosis. You kind of just learn it as you go by. And some of the things... Uh, are rules, some of them are, are clues, some of them are stories, some of them are shared memories as a, as a, as a culture, as a people, uh, and some of those rules, uh, when someone breaks them, there's, there's, there's a big outcry, and I know the royal family's been in the news quite a bit lately, 
But I was, I was thinking of a story from a number of years ago when the Queen visited Australia and the Prime Minister at the time touched her back. Does anyone remember that? You know, and the outcry, he touched the Queen. How dare he touch her? You know, hands off our Queen, you Aussie. You know, that was sort of some of the headlines that were floating around. Um, he broke a rule that everybody was supposed to know. You don't touch the sovereign. In fact, you don't even shake the sovereign's hand until they extend it to you. All right, so he broke a cultural rule. And people watching that would have picked that up. Now, we're probably a little less au fait with royal protocol these days. Um, but Luke's readers would have known their culture. So, for example, sometimes he just uses a simple word or a simple phrase to shock them or to challenge them. So one of our favorite stories in Luke chapter 10 is the Good Samaritan. In verse 33, the very first word there in the Greek text is actually Samaritan. So Jesus is telling this story, and he's doing a classic rabbi uh, setup where you do it in bunches of threes. So the first person came along, didn't do anything. The second person came along, didn't do anything. So the audience is sitting there. They're waiting for who's this third person going to be. They, they know the literary convention. Who's it going to be? It's going to be some villager. It's going to be one of us. It's going to be one of the goodies. And then Luke goes, Samaritan. You could have probably almost heard the chills in the audience. Right? So Luke is dropping these clues and these signals, and he's drawing upon this culture. Luke is also an ancient writer, and sometimes when he writes, he makes connections that are not as precise as we would like them to be. Now, we're quite a precise culture. What time is it? 9.22. What time will you come to the house? Three-ish. No, don't give me three-ish. Is it 3 o'clock? Is it 3.15? Is it 3.05? We had a phone call the other day from the meter reader saying, you know, make sure we lock up our dog. I'm not sure if you've seen our vicious Labrador who might lick you to death. Because um, they're going to come and read the meter in the next three days. <laughs> what does that mean? Is that next literal three days? Is that next three business days? Like what time in those days? Six in the morning, five at night? You know, we don't like that sort of language. So sometimes when Luke makes connections to other parts of Scripture or to other stories or to other areas, he's kind of, it's a little fuzzy. It's a little sort of tentative, not as precise as we would like. And even in our very passage that we're looking at today, uh, he does this. If you look at the start of uh, verse 28, uh, about eight days after Jesus said this, about eight days. Now, we don't like that sort of language. How long are you going to stay? About eight days. Is that six days? that nine days? Like how much food should I get in for you to stay about eight days? When are you going to get here? In about eight days. So is that Monday? Is that Friday? You know, what are you talking about? We, we like precision. So sometimes Luke doesn't write as we would write. And so when he makes connections, and we're going to see a whole bunch of them in a few moments, some of them aren't as tight as we would like, but they're connecting into broader stories. He's connecting into a, a larger worldview, and he's drawing upon all these connections that people knew about that we sometimes miss. All right. We also remember uh, the, the Gospel of Luke is part one of a two-part story. Uh, he's getting the story of Jesus from Galilee, and that's where we're going to be today, up in the north of Israel. The story moves down to Jerusalem and ultimately ends up in Rome. So Luke Acts uh, is the story of the Gospel moving from a, a backwater of the imperial empire to the capital. And Luke Acts doesn't really, is not really interested in those whole other stories that operate out east. 
Uh, research today would suggest that the church out east, sort of what we would call Iran, Iraq, and all the way out to China, was actually larger than the church in, in the west. But the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles are interested about getting the story, the gospel message, to the capital. And that's what he does. And we're, we're part of that. So let's just zoom in a little bit more um, as we unpack this story. Um, and while he's doing that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's a physical journey, but it's also a journey of discipleship. And as they're going along, the disciples and us as the readers are learning what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be part of this new kingdom? Now, the apostles, the disciples, thought they knew what that meant. But Jesus is constantly teaching them. It's actually quite different. There's something else going on here. And, and our incident in Luke chapter 9, 28 onwards, highlights that difference and sort of endorses that difference. Chapters 1 and 2, we have the birth of Jesus of Luke. Um, and at the end of that section, we have these words uh, in uh, Luke 2, 51 and 52. So he's come back out of the temple. He's met up with his parents. They were a bit cross with him because he went wandering. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued uh, in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Chapters 3 through 9, where we find ours, is Jesus' early ministry up in Galilee. He's starting to do things. He's starting to go out and he's starting to preach. He's starting to clash with people. He's calling his disciples. He's doing some miracles. He's gathering some momentum. People are starting to take interest in him. He's starting to uh, interact with the local officials, and people don't like what he's got to say sometimes. Uh, he also, in our section, the 12 go out. He sent them out on a mission in the early part of chapter 9. They come back. It's gone really well. Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus talks about how he'll go to Jerusalem and he'll die. So there's this reaction to this, well, what do you mean you're going to die? What's all this about? You know, why is this the sort of message you're teaching, Jesus? Uh, and in the section just before us, he says this about following him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Luke 9, 23 through 26 states, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will be saved. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then in Luke 27, chapter, chapter 9, 27, it states that some of those present will not even taste death before they see the kingdom. They're going to see this before they even die. It's not, it's not some distant prediction, not some future statement. It's going to happen soon. Now, in the Jewish world at the time, there were a number of concepts about this kingdom. It's been spoken about a number of times. The key point is a leader was going to come and throw off the Romans. And every now and again, someone would do that. We'll, we'll try to do that. And usually it, end, it went like this. Someone rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. Um, I'm, I'm this appointed person from God. Um, I'm here to rule the world and, and, and sort of establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem. 
um, and they would go out to the desert, they would gather followers, they would get weapons, and they'd try to throw off the Romans, and then they'd all get killed. And after the life of Jesus, this happened another couple of times, actually three more times, um, and the Romans were brutal. They put down, I think it was in the second revolt, several hundred thousand people they killed to put down this revolt. So that's, that's kind of the worldview they were looking for. They were looking for a very physical redemption of their kingdom, that there'd be this freedom in this new world. And Jesus starts talking quite a bit differently about this world. Um, following our section in chapters 9 through 19, he, he starts this journey to Jerusalem, 951. He set his face towards Jerusalem. And he seems to take a long time to get there. He doesn't get there until chapter 19. seems to wander around a bit. But it's a journey about discipleship more than a physical journey to Jerusalem. He's talking about discipleship. Some of our favorite stories are in there. Uh, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Uh, and he's talking about what discipleship should look like in this kingdom. Uh, a commentator called John Nolan wrote this about our section. Within section 9, 21 through 50, verses 28 through 36, provide a preliminary fulfillment of Jesus' promise in verse 27, where those who live now will not, will not taste death before they see the kingdom, and impress upon the inner disciple band the need to hear Jesus when he outlines his own suffering path to glory and calls others to a life of bearing their crosses and coming after him. Beyond the immediate setting, the structural links of this unit are much more complicated, or complex, sorry. Many of your Bibles might have a heading at this point that this is called the transfiguration. It's one of those big theological words. What does it mean? It just means to change, that Jesus was changed in this passage. Come from the Latin term, and it means to change. Verse 28 of our passage, Jesus takes his three disciples and he goes up the mountain to pray. Now this connects with the Garden of Gethsemane, where he goes to the garden to pray. And if you look through the Gospel of Luke, and actually all the Gospels, you'll find these constant references to Jesus when he's about to do things, Jesus in his everyday life, Jesus when he's going about his business, he's constantly seeking God in prayer, his Father in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I found that quite challenging, just to read that piece. Sometimes we pray when we're in trouble only. You know, like a little child when they get in trouble with their parent. Dad, help me. You know. A number of years ago when I was about 15, back in the days where you could build a bonfire uh, in your backyard. Uh, I grew up in South Auckland. I was, I was building this big font bonfire in the backyard. And it was huge. I mean, it was probably a bit bigger than it should have been. It was nearly the height of the garage for the next door neighbor's house. And I'm sitting there feeding fuel into this bonfire. You know, yeah, I'm pretty tough and this is cool. And way off in the distance I hear, that's interesting. South Auckland, you know, kind of used to sirens at nighttime on a Saturday night. And then it got louder and louder and louder. And then the fire truck pulled up our drive. I go run into the house, Dad, the fire brigade's here. Can you take care of it? Dad goes, okay, I'll go out and take care of it. That kind of sums up our prayer life sometimes, that we seek God only when we're in trouble or we need something? Or is prayer a, a foundation stone to our lives? Is it everywhere? 
Is it part of all that we do? Every step we make, every decision we make, every aspect of our lives starts and ends with prayer. And here's Jesus, not lecturing us on it. He's not telling us about it. He's not giving us instructions. He's not saying you need to have this amount of prayer per day. Just a simple statement. He went up a mountain with his disciples, or three of them, to pray. And this connection, uh, this passage I said, connects with us to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying again before his death that he knows is coming. Verse uh, 28 and 29, it talks about his clothing and his face changing. This connects us to Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 12 where we get the sense of what it's like to be in God's presence, the Son of, son of Man, this, this white linen, this dazzlingness that connects to God's glory, that what they were seeing wasn't just some guy with a really nice suit, but somehow his very presence was radiating out God's glory. Just stop and think about that for a moment. This is part of the central claim of the Christian faith, that Jesus is not just some dude, not some wise guy, not some guy with some good wisdom, not some person with uh, some amazing things in his life. The claim is, He's actually God in person on earth. Not a bit of God, not a little chip of God, but all of God. And the next five centuries of the Christian church after these events were struggling about what that meant. What does it mean for a human being to be also fully God? And there's all sorts of formulas, and if you've got to spare 10 years, you can, you can pursue that theological debates and read the church fathers arguing over points, um, over letters, um, and, uh, and it's an interesting time if you want to do that. But here's Jesus. He's changed his very presence, and it connects us to, to Daniel and Ezekiel. And he's talking in verse 30 to Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah also went up mountains to meet God's presence, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 24 and 1 Kings 19. So, the same event happened to Moses. The same event happened to Elijah. And now here's Jesus on the mountain with those two people talking to him as the same thing takes place. And they're talking to him about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. They're talking to him about his death. They're talking to him about what's going to happen. And the word there says departure in your text is actually exodus. It's the same language of leading the people out of slavery. But Jesus is exodus from this world. So again, more of this deep and rich theological language. Uh, and then this cloud comes down after they leave. Uh, as usual, Peter gets it wrong. So uh, that's why I like Peter. Fumbles around sometimes, makes some stupid statements up, blurts things out, uh, socially says the wrong thing. My wife might say that I'm inclined to do some of those things as well. So, um, you know, perhaps that's why I like him so much. Then this cloud comes down and says, this is my son. Now, I've never had that experience in my life where such a powerful statement from God happens in one's presence like this. God didn't come down and say, this is a good guy. He didn't come down and say, this is an interesting dude. You should, you know, he's got some good things to say. He's got some interesting points about life. He came down and he states, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
Now, this, this statement has a number of layers of application. First of all, Jesus has just been talking about in his Gospels, about going to Jerusalem. Peter said, you're the Messiah. Jesus said, I'm going to go there and they're going to kill me. My kingdom's going to be about discipleship and taking up your cross. My kingdom's going to be this different way of doing things. I'm not going to gather an army, basically. I'm not going to gather up troops. I'm not going to try to fight the Romans. This kingdom is going to be about a different way of living. And, and following this section, he unpacks that. What, how do we treat each other? How do we interact with each other? How do we treat the poor? How do we treat those around us? How do we interact with our families? How do we live this life of discipleship? That's what follows. This cloud comes down, tells them to follow Jesus. I like verse 36, which ends our passage off quite nicely. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. I mentioned at the start of my sermon about insight. Sometimes insights are funny and they're playful and sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they're about things like getting older or maybe not being as talented at things we would like to be, that sort of thing. Sometimes they're, they're deep, sometimes they're rather personal. We, we get an insight about our, our personality, perhaps our weaknesses, our skills, uh, what we like, what we're good at, what we're not good at. The disciples, these three disciples understood who Jesus really was. And they kept silent about it. I think not so much because they were trying to keep a secret, but I think they didn't fully understand the full implications of this statement. Not until after his death and resurrection, which comes later in the gospel. They kept silent. So what do we do with this today? Where do we, how do we apply this? There's a great many connections to Scripture uh, in this passage. So if, if you've got time and inclined, go back and, and read it yourself. And if you've got a cross-referencing Bible, you'll see a lot of different texts connect into what's going on here. So Luke's writing and drawing upon this rich cultural history. Um, however, I want to focus on the insight gained from this vision of Jesus. Uh, some commentators, and I, I quite like this idea, find that John chapter 1 verse 14 is John's summary of this passage. And in, in 1.14, it states that uh, Jesus uh, became flesh, or God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's sort of John's summary of this event. John writes his gospel quite a bit differently. That kind of is the heart of the Christian message, that the person we serve, that we worship, we sing about, we, we seek guidance, we emulate, is God amongst us. And Jesus went through the same life that we did. Now, when I was a little kid growing up in church, number one, the gospel stories all kind of felt like a big mish of stories. I couldn't make sense of how they all fitted and flowed. So trying to put some structure was really helpful. But also, too, I kind of wondered whether, you know, when no one was looking, did Jesus kind of zap himself a Coke, you know, or turn the air conditioning on in his hot place in Palestine? You know, did he kind of sneak out some, some magical uh, comforts and then as I've gotten older, I've realized, well, no, because that's not experiencing life in the first century like everybody else was around. That's kind of cheating. Uh, they call it glamping in some parts of the world now, where you go camping, but you're not really camping. You've, you've basically got a hotel that you've just opened up. Okay, so Jesus wasn't glamping uh, when he visited earth. He wasn't just sort of slumming it for a bit. He actually fully experienced the life that we go through. So that's who we serve. That's the 
That's the person we're trying to emulate. That's the person that we are trying to follow and become like. So when we talk about discipleship, we're not talking about following someone who didn't live it. We're not talking about following someone who just talked about it. We're not following someone who sort of just pretended they were doing it. We're actually following somebody who knew that discipleship was going to take him to Jerusalem where he would lay down his life for all of us. What insight will you gain this year as you start off 2020? Where's your faith? Where's your discipleship? Where's your prayer life? There's a number of questions this passage asks. What's going to be different? How is this knowledge, how is this encounter with Jesus on a mountain uh, going to change who you are? Now, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of data coming my way these days through various uh, emails and social media, and most of it I'm not interested in. It just sort of floats right over me. You know, that delete button and that unsubscribe function are very powerful tools sometimes. But we're called upon to become disciples who allow this text to change us, to influence us, to modify us so that we become more and more like Christ. This morning we're going to break bread and take the wine as the disciples did, uh, which is another link to this passage. For some, this morning is a time of celebration. It's been a great week. It's a great start to the year. And communion is a great way to, to refocus uh, it's a great way to reconnect with Jesus, the, the community of faith. Perhaps this is your first Sunday back. Last week we were in America and it was a very chilly minus one where I was. So sorry I'm overdressed with pants, um, like shorts like a lot of the other worship team. Um, communion also can be a time of reflection to gain insight. Perhaps it's time to ask somebody, hey, where do you think I am? What am I doing? Perhaps it's time to restart your prayer life or your Bible reading life. There's a lot of ways you can do that. So please join me. I'm going to pray, and then we can stand and take communion at the side tables. Lord God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you that you're a God of second chances and 400th chances. We thank you that you loved us so much that your son came to this world, lived amongst us, and lived a life of discipleship and sacrifice. We pray we can be people that seek that life out as well. We pray we can be people that want to be more like you. We pray that people will know that we are Christians by our love. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.